The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word, to learn about your grace, to learn about the depths and riches of our salvation and all that you have done for us. Too often, Father, the complexities of, uh, of our salvation are, are beyond us. We do not think about them very deeply. And yet, as we analyze the scriptures, especially the ones we are studying in Galatians, we are impressed with how much you have done and how uh, great our salvation is. Now, Father, as we study these things, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand them, that we might assimilate them into our soul to strengthen us, to mature us, that we might live lives that glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Our passage is Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Let me begin by reading that before we get into the text itself. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came... God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now before we get into this passage and begin to understand all of the different intricacies of these seven verses, we have to get involved in a little review. Two kinds of review. Review not only of the underlying illustration of adoption as it existed in the Roman world, but also to think back about our salvation. As we have worked our way through Galatians, from Galatians 1, where Paul makes the emphasis that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that the gospel must be kept pure, and the gospel must exclude all works because once you add anything to faith, if you add human works in any way, shape, or form, it dilutes and destroys faith. So that faith alone in Christ alone is the pure gospel. Once man tries to add works, whether it's church attendance, whether it's giving, whether it's obedience to the Mosaic law, whatever it may be, the addition of any kind of work, human works, human effort, destroys the work because Christ paid the price in full. He did it all. He performed all of the work. And for man to think that anything he does adds or complements what Christ did is nothing short of arrogance. And it is a statement that Christ's work is not sufficient. As we worked our way through Galatians chapter 1 and into Galatians 2, we've looked at the doctrines of justification by faith, doctrines of imputation of righteousness. We've looked at doctrines related to the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in the first part of Galatians 3, where Paul makes a transition from 
discussing justification salvation, which is what takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ, to sanctification salvation or spiritual life. There are three phases in God's plan. Remember, phase one we call justification. Normally when we talk, we'll say, are you saved? Meaning, is your eternal destiny in heaven? So that word is sometimes used here, and we are saved from the eternal condemnation for sin. But saved is also used in another context, and it has to do with being saved from the power of sin today. That's the spiritual life, uh, and this is also called sanctification. And there's much confusion, and has been much confusion throughout the history of Christianity about what the Christian life consists. Many people think that it is based upon obedience to the Mosaic law, some system of works, or some system of ritual. And yet, the Bible is clear that it, too, is based on grace. Just as justification, salvation is based on grace, sanctification is also based on grace. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 5, when he asks the questions, uh, or starting in verse 3, 3, 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is, here at phase 1, are you now being matured by the flesh? In other words, the Galatian believers had been seduced by the false doctrine of the Judaizers, and they were trying to achieve spiritual maturity through obedience to the Mosaic Law. That's the background in chapter 3, and so throughout the argument that Paul presents his case, he is basically stating that the law was temporary in its very nature and had nothing to do for Israel in either justification or sanctification, but its purpose was to point man to their need for exclusive dependence upon God. And then the third phase of God's plan is glorification, when we are saved from the eternal presence of sin, when we no longer have a sin nature. Now, let's try to see how all of these various doctrines work together. This is the hard work of doing a little theology. The theological term for this is the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We've talked about these different doctrines from regeneration to justification to imputation and baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've said that they all take place simultaneously at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. That is, in that one moment of time, a moment of time that is shorter than the blink of an eye, in that one instant, a nanosecond, God the Father performs numerous things in your life that happen simultaneously. And yet, for instructional purposes, we break them out into different categories, and we have to see how they relate together. I think one of the greatest problems we face as Christians sometimes, and you've all run into this when you're talking to somebody, perhaps you're witnessing to them, or you're at work and you're sitting around talking with a friend or talking with a family member, and they say, well, how is it that you can be sure that once you're saved, you're always saved? You always run into that, that barrier that people throw up about eternal security, never understanding how it is that you can ha- be given the gift of salvation, and it's yours forever no matter what happens, no matter what you do. And part of the underlying problem that people have is they do not understand the complexities of salvation. The reason that one reason they don't understand the complexities of salvation is, frankly, they don't understand the complexities of condemnation. They don't understand the complexities of sin and all of the various uh, ramifications of Adam's sin. And so they don't understand 
what God had to do in order to save us. So that's what we're going to look at under 12 points this morning, trying to understand the logical relationship of the different facets of our salvation. First of all, it begins with faith alone in Christ alone. At the moment we hear the gospel, a gospel hearing, we respond by saying, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. This is spelled out in Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Now, at that instant, a number of things take place. First of all, we have efficacious grace. Efficacious grace is defined as the work of God the Holy Spirit, where he takes the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever and makes it effective for salvation. You see, at that moment in time, when you're here, we'll put X on the overhead, that's the moment you hear the, the uh, gospel, you are spiritually dead. That means you can do nothing that has any value. You can't even respond in faith. That doesn't have any value. You are spiritually brain dead. You cannot even understand the gospel. And that status of being spiritually brain dead, God, the Holy Spirit, acts as a human spirit and helps you to understand the gospel. And the moment you respond in faith alone, in Christ alone, God, the Holy Spirit, then takes that faith, that faith in Christ alone, that is the faith of a spiritually dead person, and makes it effective for salvation. You see, you're not saved because you believe. You are saved through faith. There's a difference. Faith is the means by which God saves you. The object of faith is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has all the value, not faith. Faith is something that can be performed by any person. Uh, it doesn't matter what your education background is. It doesn't matter your IQ. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter what kind of a job you have. It doesn't matter what country you live in. Any human being can exercise faith. And so God the Holy Spirit takes that faith, and because its object is Christ alone, and he is the one who has all the value, he makes it effective for salvation. So first there's faith, then there's efficacious grace, which is one of the seven ministries of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Third, we come to another ministry of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and that is regeneration. Regeneration is a technical theological term used in the Scriptures. In John 3, Jesus uses the phrase monogenes. Uh, excuse me, in John 3, Jesus uses the phrase born again, and then in Titus 3, 5, he uses the phrase monogenes, or not monogenes, but polygenes, which is to be born again. Uh, regeneration is the work of God the Holy Spirit, and there are three phases, or three facets, let's say, three facets to regeneration. First of all, we have the Holy Spirit cleansing the unbeliever from all pre-salvation sins. This is stated in Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By what? By the washing of regeneration. So regeneration has a cleansing aspect to it, a washing aspect. Why do we have this? Remember at sin, at the point of Adam's sin, he, prior to sin, he was perfect righteousness, plus R, created in the image and likeness of God. At the moment that he sinned and he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he lost his perfect righteousness and he had a negative account as far as God's concerned, minus R, negative righteousness. Cleansing, let's put this in, in uh, 
accounting terms. We'll say this is zero balance. What happens at the moment that, that Adam sinned was the human race is plunged into minus R. Cleansing wipes out the deficit so that you are brought back up to a zero balance. But in order to get into heaven, we can't merely have a zero balance. We have to have a positive righteousness, a righteousness that is acceptable to God. Remember what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God accepts, and the righteousness of God demands perfect righteousness. Well, this is where imputation comes in. Imputation imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Cleansing is the first facet of this. Imputation will come logically follows that. Now, all of, remember, all of these take place simultaneously. We're just breaking it down for academic purposes to understand all the dynamics that occur at the moment of salvation. So the Holy Spirit, the first facet of regeneration, is the cleansing or washing of all pre-salvation sins. Every single sin you committed from the moment you were born until the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior is wiped out at that point. The eraser is brought out and it's wiped clean. Those sins are not an issue at all ever again. Secondly, the second facet after cleansing is B, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts a new human spirit. Now, this is very important to understand, and I'm surprised how many people, theologians and seminary students, do not understand this. We talk about being born again all the time. You read people who use this terminology. You hear pastors and teachers utilize this terminology, and yet they don't understand what it is that is born again. And because they don't understand what is born again, they end up making all kinds of theological and doctrinal errors afterwards. What is born again is a human spirit. When Adam was originally created, and Isha, the woman, his wife, she's called Isha up until the time of the sin when her na she's named Eve. So at the moment, uh, in, during perfection, during the age of perfection, from creation to the fall, she's known as Isha. So Adam and Isha are created trichotomous. That means they have a physical body. They have a human soul. That's the uh, self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. They have a human soul, and they have a human, a human spirit. <coughs> At the moment of the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... The human spirit is what died. The Lord warned them, the moment you eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, the Hebrew uses a very interesting construction there. And that construction is comprised of a cow perfect from the verb uh, moot, which means to die, plus the cow infinitive absolute. Now, unfortunately, somewhere along the line, about 75 or 100 years ago, uh, people who didn't know Hebrew very well started teaching that this, this double usage of the verb moot should be translated, dying, you will die. 
I'm sure you were taught that. I was taught that for many, many years. And when I started studying Hebrew, I realized that that was a syntactical error. That in no Hebrew grammar can you validate that. In fact, if you look at any other passage, especially in Genesis or in Moses' writings or any of the Old Testament, and you try to translate this kind of a, of a grammatical construction with a participle plus a main verb, it doesn't make sense. It just, it's just invalid. What this is emphasizing, when you look in the grammars, this combination emphasizes absolute certainty that something will happen at that instant with absolute certainty you can count on it. It's not dying you will die. That was, even theologically you can look at it and say that's a problem. Dying you will die, the second die was taken to be physical death, and the first dying spiritual death. Well, if you translate it with a participle, that would mean spiritual death is an ongoing process. But spiritual death was an absolute that occurred at the moment Adam sinned. It was final at that point. He didn't go through a process of losing his human spirit. He lost it instantly. In a moment in time, it was gone. He was spiritually dead. What, the, what God warned them of was at the instant they, they ate of the fruit, they would die. They would die spiritually. And the consequence of spiritual death was not only physical death to the human race, but physical death throughout the entire zoological order uh, it also affected vegetation. You had the development of thorns and thistles and all kinds of problems as a result of the curse of sin and death. Curse of sin on all of creation. So, man was born with a body, soul, and spirit, and this is called trichotomous. Tri for three. Once Adam and Esha sinned and lost the human spirit, they became dichotomous. Now, the human spirit is that part of man's makeup which enables him to have rapport with God, to have a relationship with God, and to understand and assimilate spiritual truth. Now, we live in an era when the term spiritual and spirituality is bandied about every time you turn on the television or look at a book or, or listen to somebody speak. It's, it's sort of one of the pop words of the, of the 90s. Unfortunately, it's used to mean a whole variety of things, many of which are contradictory. And when a word is used like that, it ultimately it ends up losing a lot of its meaning. But the Bible is very clear that spirituality relates to man's relationship with God, and that's based on his having a human spirit. So without a human spirit, man cannot have any relationship with God, and he can't understand any spiritual truth, period. Something has to happen so that man recovers that human spirit. That is regeneration. When, we, when Jesus used the phrase, born again, what had to be given birth to? A human spirit. Now see, what happens when you read a lot of theologies and you hear a lot of preachers is they think that you're given new, new life. But new, That's true, but let's be a little more specific. In what sense are you given new life? And the other problem that enters into this is, of course, at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, they acquired a sin nature. Now, the only difference between the sin nature of a, of a religious person and the sin nature of a criminal is not that one has less, less of a sin nature than the other, is volition. 
One has given vent to their sin nature in realms of criminality, whereas the good person, assuming for the sake of illustration they're not saved, they're just as, have the same capacities for evil and wickedness as the so-called, I mean, as, as the criminal. It's just that in their area of weakness, they're operating on what's called human good. But God says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. No matter how good you are, no how much religious activity you get involved in, God calls it filthy rags. It's no good, and it doesn't bring you to the point of perfect righteousness. So when we look at the regeneration, there are three facets. First of all, there is the cleansing of all pre-salvation sins. Secondly, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts a new human spirit to the believer. And God the Father, the third facet, is God the Father imputes his very own eternal life to that human spirit so that it now has, now will spend eternity with him in heaven. Those are the three facets to regeneration. So, in understanding the logical relationship, let's review. First of all, you express faith alone in Christ alone. Secondly, there's efficacious grace where God the Holy Spirit takes the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever and makes it effective for salvation. Just a side note. If you think that you can lose your salvation, then what you would be saying is that God the Holy Spirit would have to reverse that process and take that faith and reverse it and make it ineffective. Third is regeneration. There's cleansing. The Holy Spirit creates and imparts a new human spirit, and God the Father imputes eternal life to the human spirit. To say that you lose your salvation is to say that you lo- those three processes are reversed. Fourth, God the Father imputes perfect, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, to this new human spirit. God the Father imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us in order that uh, the righteousness of God might be found in us. That was part of the purpose for his salvation. So the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, so that when God the Father looks at you, experientially you are minus R, you are a sinner. But when he looks at you, he sees that you have been covered or clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the image that the Scripture uses again and again, is that of putting on a robe. This is a robe of Christ's righteousness. This is what's referred to in Galatians 3:27 when it says for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now notice the verb tense there. It takes us back. You were baptized, so there's a relationship between the baptism of the Holy Spirit which is the subject of that passage and the imputation of Christ. So that brings us to the fifth point or, or excuse, I'm getting ahead of myself. At the same moment that we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ, We are then justified. God the Father, from the Supreme Court of Heaven, looks at our possession of this perfect righteousness and declares us to be just or vindicated. We are declared just. Not on the basis of the works of righteousness which we have done or anything else, but God the Father declares us to be just because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do afterwards, you can't lose that salvation. There is no sin that you can commit that is so devastating and so heinous that God the Father 
will take this away from you because it's not based on anything good. This is your experience right here, and you're minus R. And as far as God's concerned in this issue, whether it's a sin of eating a piece of fruit, in the case of Adam and Eve, or the sin of adultery, murder, and the consequent cover-up, in the case of David, one or the other both get you out of fellowship or separated from God and are not compatible with the perfect righteousness of God. So it doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are, you can't lose your salvation. You have the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the basis for justification. Now, six. We look at all of these things. Regeneration, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, creation of a new human spirit. We look at the imputation of righteousness and the declaration of justification. And simultaneously with all of that, there is a unique work in history called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. first time it occurred in history was at the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after Passover, when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So point number six, simultaneously with regeneration, God the Son takes the believer who he has immersed in the Holy Spirit, which is tantamount to cleansing and regeneration. Remember, we studied the baptism of the Holy Spirit last week. We saw the analogy with John the Baptist. So we'll draw two columns up here on the overhead. John the Baptist over one, Christ over the other. John the Baptist said, Just as I take the believer and immerse him into water and bring him out in a new state, identification with repentance and the kingdom, in the same way, he who comes after me, Jesus Christ, will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that, he, that according to this passage, there, that we are all one in Christ. At the end of verse 28, this is the new status. We are one in Christ. This is our new position. It's done by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is tantamount to cleansing and regeneration. So God the Son, simultaneously with, with the above acts, regeneration, imputation, and justification, takes the believer who he has immersed in God the Holy Spirit and uses that process to identify the new believer with his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? So in this process, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a permanent identification. This is what we also call positional truth. And then that is subdivided into two categories. There is retroactive positional truth and current positional truth. Retroactive positional truth. Now, the term retroactive means that it goes back to something prior. Retroactive positional truth means that at the moment of salvation, we are identified with something that happened prior in time, which is the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you see how all of these dynamics, all of these facets of salvation all work together. So many things take place at the moment of faith alone and Christ alone, and it's difficult for us to pull it all together, but we're trying to see some of these and how they relate this morning. 
So God the Son, simultaneously with regeneration, imputation, and justification. This is almost another figure for the same kind of thing, but there are different, different elements to it. Takes the believer who has immersed, who he has immersed in the Holy Spirit, which is tantamount to cleansing and regeneration, and uses this process to identify the new believer with his death, burial, and resurrection. Never before in human history has this taken place, and this is what is called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. There's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. It was prophesied by John the Baptist and Jesus. It was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and it takes place in the life of every believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. So now we come to point number seven. At this moment, the believer is given an eternal position in Christ and is adopted as an adult son into the royal family of God with all the assets, privileges, and power of this royal family. What happens? At the moment of faith alone, in Christ alone, we are put into what we call the top circle in this well-known diagram. We are said to be in Christ. This top circle represents our eternal relationship with God the Father. We are, as part of being in the top circle, we are given 39 irrevocable assets, plus one that is revocable, and that's the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, but as soon as we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit, and we lose it. And that's what we illustrate in the bottom circle, which is our relationship with God in time, the filling of the Holy Spirit, that when we sin, we're out here in what the King James called carnality, what newer translations call fleshliness, which is the control of the sin nature, and the only way of restoration is through 1 John 1, 9. This is our position in Christ. This is our experience. Let me write that up here. Position, experience. What we're talking about right now is our position in Christ. This is the subject of Galatians 4, 1 through 7. If we're not clear on positional truth, if we're not clear on these distinctions, we will not understand the implications of these seven verses. So at the moment the believer is, is baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, he is immersed in or identified in Christ. That's the process. We are given an eternal position in Christ, and this passage uses the analogy of Roman adoption and teaches that at that moment we are adopted as an adult son. Now, that's an important concept. Down here, the Bible uses the word in the Greek, techna, T-E-K-N-A, child. We go from uh, spiritual infancy, from being a child, to spiritual maturity. Teleao, that's the process, to be made complete, to be brought to completion, brought to maturity. In our experience, we go from being a spiritual baby to being a spiritual adult. But positionally, we are adopted as a huias. This is the same word used to describe Jesus Christ, H-U-I-O-S. We are an adult son with all the rights and privileges thereto. An adult son in the royal family of God. Here we are given an incredible array of spiritual assets. We have power and position because of our place in the royal family of God. 
So point number seven was that at the moment we're given an eternal position in Christ, we're adopted as an adult son with all the assets, privileges, and power belonging to a member of that family. Point number eight, results. Three results that we ought to emphasize here. First of all, we become a spiritually new creature. Spiritually, we are a new creature. Before you were saved, before you had faith alone in Christ alone, you were spiritually dead, separated from God, under divine condemnation, and destined for eternity in the lake of fire. After salvation, you have a human spirit. You have capacity for a relationship with God. You can learn and understand Bible doctrine. You're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. You are ba- you've been baptized by God the Holy Spirit. And you can have the filling of the Holy Spirit when you're in fellowship so that you can learn Bible doctrine and grow spiritually. So we become a new creature spiritually. Secondly, we are a new creature historically. Never before in human history has this taken place. Now, regeneration took place. Regeneration has been standard at the moment of salvation throughout all the dispensations, throughout all of human history, because you still needed to have a, acquire a human spirit so you could have a relationship with God. But all of these other facets, adoption, baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, None of this took place in the, in the Old Testament. So historically, we are a new creature. Never before in human history has the everyday average believer had everything that you and I have in this dispensation. That's what makes our spiritual life so incredible and so phenomenal. We are historically a new creature. And third, we are positionally a new creature. We are positionally a new creature because of our position in Christ. Never before in human history was a believer united with Jesus Christ. Never before in human history was a believer identified with his death, burial, and resurrection because that had not happened yet. But because that has happened, because salvation has been completed, Jesus said it is finished, because that has been completed, we can be identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection So we have a new position with Christ. Point eight, point nine. The new creature assets that we have are directly related to God, to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is unique to the church age. First Corinthians five nineteen says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And as part of this new creature, we have a, an array of assets that are related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that is new. New to the church age. Never before has this taken place in human history. Point number ten. Therefore, The spiritual life of the church age is unique. It is not based on the Mosaic law. It's not based on morality. It's not based on works. It's not based on ritual. It is based on a unique dynamic which is produced by God the Holy Spirit 
and was implicitly promised in the Abrahamic covenant. That's where we go back to the phrase that I've spent so much time talking about, the promise of blessing to the Gentiles as part of the third section of the Abrahamic covenant, which Paul refers to in Galatians 3.14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that all that we've covered so far, regeneration, imputation, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, with that we get this unique, all of these unique ministries of God the Holy Spirit, which are the foundation for the unique spiritual life of the church age. And the trouble is most Christians, most theologians, have never understood this. And they constantly want to go back to the Mosaic Law or to ritual as the basis for spirituality, if not salvation. So all this shows that the Mosaic Law was temporary, that ritual works, human good has no place in the spiritual life. It is a unique life based upon the power and energy and dynamic of God the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the last point, point number 12. Because of all of this, the believer is radically cut off from the Mosaic Law, which was temporary in nature. Mosaic Law is not the basis for salvation, spiritual life, and is no longer in effect. The Mosaic Law was never designed to bring people to salvation or for maturity in the spiritual life period. The Mosaic Law was designed to show people their inadequacy. It was designed to restrain sin and criminality in the nation Israel so that they could be preserved until the time that Jesus Christ would come for the first advent, and it was designed to protect them from the damaging effects of idolatry. And aside from the third section the third codex of the Mosaic Law, which deals with all of their ritual, it was designed for believer and unbeliever alike. The third codex deals with the temple, tabernacle rituals, and sacrifices, and that was also for believer and unbeliever alike. You can comb through all the pages of Leviticus, and you'll never find once that it's required of a priest to be saved. He had to be born into the tribe of Levi. He couldn't have any physical defects. And he, uh, but there no place does it mention that in order to be a priest to perform in the tab- tabernacle or temple, did you have to be regenerate? So that all of this had to do all all three codexes in the Mosaic Law had to do with believer and unbeliever alike, and were never designed as a means of salvation. And that is a point of great confusion today. So with those points. What we have reviewed is how all of these different facets of the spiritual life work together in order to provide us with a great salvation. Now, the problem that we see is when you explain to people that all you have to do is accept Christ as their Savior, it's by faith alone and Christ alone, what do they say? Well, that's too easy. I should do something. I've done such horrible things. I must make up for it. But that's blasphemy because that assumes that there's something we can do that gains God's merit or gains God's approval. And what we see is that, 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 that sin is so exceedingly sinful and has such a, an infective nature about it that everything that we do is infected by it and there's nothing that we can do to gain God's approval no matter how good it is. 
So with all of that for background, we need to go to our second subject for background this morning, and that is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. And we're going to cover this under two categories. First of all, the historical background, and secondly, the doctrinal background. We cover the historical background under the principle of isagogics. Isagogics means that the Bible must be interpreted in the time in which it was written. We can't interpret the Bible in today's concepts. For example, the practice of adoption today is much different from the practice of adoption in the ancient Roman world. The practice of adoption today is designed to take a child who's born outside of the family and then to bring them into the family and make them a legal member of that family. So adoption today primarily relates to a child, but adoption in Roman culture related to adulthood. And even a natural-born son could be adopted. Adoption had to do with inheritance. This is a very important doctrine that we will spend more and more time discussing in coming weeks. The basic meaning, the basic meaning, the core meaning, it has various other nuances, but the core meaning of inheritance is possession, to own something, to have something as your right of possession. So let's review the historical background a little bit. There was Greek adoption. At the time of the New Testament, there were two major cultures that had come together. There was Greek culture and Roman culture. In Greek culture, adoption emphasizes the family relationship. A man during his lifetime or by his will after his death, see, today you can't adopt somebody after you die. But in, in Greece, you could adopt someone after you died. So a man during his lifetime or by will after his death could adopt any male citizen into the privileges of his own family, not just a child, but any male citizen, into the privileges of his own family, but with the invariable condition that the adopted son accepted the legal obligations and religious duties of a real son. So when Paul talks about adoption in the Scriptures, he borrows from the Greeks to emphasize the familial relationship between the believer and God the Father. Roman adoption was slightly different. It was much more severe and very demanding, and it was based upon the law called Patria Potestas. This is from the word for power, where we get the word omnipotent. Potestas refers to the power of the Father. And the father had almost unlimited control and legal authority over children in the household. A son was little better than a slave until he reached adulthood or adoption at the age of 14. The reason for this was to protect aristocracy. So many times you've seen people in history that they, they have a son and they pass on their, their, uh, their title, their job, their their position to the son, and the son is the natural son is incompetent and unworthy of such responsibilities, and he's a failure or a ne'er do well. And so, in Rome, what they would do is, if the son was was no good, then the father could go outside the family and adopt an adult from somewhere else that would be his adult son, 
and would then inherit all the property and possessions and the family name, and the family would continue to go through this adopted son, and the natural son was shunted aside. This is the background for our understanding of the biblical doctrine of adoption in Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4. So the first point has to do with the difference between Greek and Roman adoption. Second point, it began with a ceremonial purchase, a ceremonial purchase or redemption. A purchase price was paid if the person was that being adopted came from outside of the family then there was a symbolic payment of a price to his natural father. This is comparable, as you should see, to the biblical doctrine of regeneration where Jesus Christ paid the penalty, paid the price for us on the cross. Point number three. Roman adoption emphasizes inheritance, not blood relationship. And it applied to both the blood son as well as the unrelated Heir. So the third point is its emphasis on inheritance, the possession of everything that belongs to the father. Fourth, for the first 14 years, the child is no longer, I mean, is, is treated no better than a slave in the household. In fact, he is put under the control of a slave in the household who's called a pedagogue, pedagogues in the Greek. This is roughly translated a tutor or guardian, but it's much more than that. It was his job to discipline the child, to keep him out of trouble, to walk him to and from school, to always be at his side, and to train him for his eventual position in adulthood. So he was a disciplinarian. He was a, a guide, a friend, a teacher. He taught authority orientation. He taught manners. He did everything he could to keep the child out of trouble. Now, that's important in the analogy because the pedagogue is related to the Mosaic law, and the purpose for the Mosaic law was to keep Israel out of trouble, historically. The way we have to understand this development in these chapters is on a historical timeline, which is called by theologians the history of salvation. Sometimes this is referred to as progressive revelation. What this means is that Adam, Abraham, Abraham did not know as much as Moses. Moses didn't understand as much as Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel did not understand as much as Paul. By the time you get down to the New Testament, Paul through John, you have the completed revelation of God. But what is understood in the New Testament is in much more detail, even though we can see it in sort of a raw form in the, in the Old Testament, they did not always understand it as clearly as we do. In fact, because we've had years, centuries to meditate and contemplate on what Paul and the other writers of the New Testament wrote, in many ways we understand all of the implications of what they wrote in ways that were probably not as clear to them as they are to us. Not that they didn't understand it in a, in a raw sense. It's not that it's different. It's that we understand it much more clearly and much more precisely today. It's all present with what they wrote. So the pedagogue, the Mosaic law, functioned historically during this period 
to restrain Israel until adulthood. So the, the phrases of immaturity and adulthood are related historically. They're not related to the church versus Israel, per se, in a, in a vertical sense, chronologically. Okay, point number five. The son had, did not have as many rights as a slave for the first 14 years of his life. Point six. During his youth, the son wore a toga of youth, which indicated his position. So he, had, he dressed accordingly. He had a uniform so that anyone who saw him knew that he was a, a child who had not yet reached maturity or adoption. Then point number seven, at his 14th birthday, there is a formal ceremony when the boy would come forth and be designated as an adult. The child would, the, the father would come up and he would take his robe of childhood off of him and then he would place upon his shoulders a, a, a toga called the toga virilis, which is the toga of manhood, and, this would, and then he would place a signet ring on his finger, and this would indicate that all of the wealth and all of the possessions of the father's, father that the father had were now owned by the child as part of his inheritance as an adult. He now had the right to marry, he had the right to vote, the right to serve in the Senate, and the right and responsibility of military service. It's point number seven. Point number eight. There is, uh, in the adoption ceremony, this releasing of the toga of youth and the placing of the toga virilis is comparable to the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation. Because it is that imputation that relates to our position in Christ that is the sign of our adoption as believers into the royal family of God. Following this, the placement of the toga on the son, point number 10, the father would announce, my son, you have now been adopted into the family. So that the child was no longer under slaves, but is now in a position of commanding the slave. So he has gone from being under the slaves and being treated as a slave to being in the master of the slaves. So one day the pedagogue is over him, the next day the pedagogue is under his authority. Now what is the significance, the doctrinal significance of adoption? Point number one. In this analogy, Paul uses the child pedagogue illustration to show the relationship, as I said back here, to show the relationship between the Mosaic law and its relationship to Israel versus adulthood in the church age. So we see a distinction in salvation history moving from the age of Israel, where Israel is viewed as a child under the strict discipline of the pedagogue of the Mosaic Law, to adulthood when there is a completed canon of Scripture, there is the indwelling, their baptism, indwelling, and filling of God the Holy Spirit, so that, and the adoption of the believer so that they are viewed as an adult. This shows that the Mosaic Law from its inception had a temporary nature designed to protect Israel and preserve the nation so that the Messiah could come through the nation and God could fulfill his promises to Israel. Second point. 
At adulthood, the pedagogue no longer has authority over the child who is now an adult. His role is over. Therefore, the role of the Mosaic Law is finished. It is no longer uh, valid, has no meaning or significance for the church-age believer other than to serve as an example. What do I mean by that? I mean that we can learn a lot about jurisprudence by looking at the Mosaic Law. If God were to design a constitution for a nation, and he did, it was the Mosaic Law. So if we are going to go out and develop a constitution for a nation or a law code, where better to look for an example than the law code that God gave? That does not mean that we would have to take everything in it or do it exactly in the same way that it's given in the Mosaic Law because we're not under that authority and that's not mandated, but it is clearly the best example of legislation in human history. But the pedagogue no longer has any authority over the believer. Point number three, adoption is one of 40 different spiritual blessings which God gives every believer at the moment of salvation. These are, 39 of these are irrevocable. They can never be lost. Only one is revocable, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which you revoke through your own volition when you sin. But you can recover it simply through the use of 1 John 1.9. So adoption... Point number one was to refer to it as the analogy that it was the Mosaic Law is analogous to the pedagogue to preserve Israel to adulthood. Point number two, the Mosaic Law is temporary, has no validity over the believer today. Point number three, adoption is one of 40 different spiritual blessings given to the believer at the moment of salvation. Point number four. Adoption is related to the believer's position in Christ. At the moment of salvation, we are placed in Christ, and we are identified with Him, thus identified with the seed of Abraham, referred to in Galatians chapter 3, 16 and 17, which means that having been identified with the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ, we can never lose our salvation. Point number five, baptism by means of the Holy Spirit enters the believer into union with Christ, and that is the mechanics of adoption. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the mechanics by which God performs the adoption. Point number six, Christ is the huios of God. Jesus Christ is called the huios, H-U-I-O-S, the adult son. Because we are identified with him and in him, we are adult sons. That is our position in Christ. We are not to be treated as children, that is, under a pedagogue, but we are in adulthood. We have all of the rights and privileges of an adult, therefore we are not under the Mosaic Law. Point number seven, as such, we become joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. We're joint heirs with Christ. This is tantamount to our position in the top circle, being new creatures in Christ. And then point number eight, 
we must understand that simultaneously with this, at the point of salvation, we have our eternal relationship up here in Christ, our position in Christ, which can never be lost, and that is our adulthood, huios. In the bottom circle, we are children. One word here is techna, which refers to a child. That can be a child from infancy to being an older child. But also we have the word that we're going to see in our next passage, and that is the word napios, which refers to an immature child, a baby, and sometimes this word is used with an insulting or pejorative meaning. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells the Corinthians, are you still acting like babies? Crying, whiny babies. And you're not learning and applying any doctrine. There it has that, that very negative connotation of, uh, of being an insult. Now, with all of that for background, now maybe we can understand what Paul is saying in the first seven verses of Galatians chapter 4. I took 45 minutes to cover all of that, and we have about 10 minutes left to cover seven verses. So, that's okay. We emphasize the main points already. Just repetition, that's what teaching is all about, going over it again and again and again to make sure we understand it. The emphasis throughout chapter 4 is on our position as an adult son and what that means. This is one of the greatest problems in all the history of Christianity is that people, Christians, are not taught what they have in Christ. So Paul has built this analogy, which he began back in verse 23 of chapter 3. He has built this analogy based on adoption, and now he is going to shift gears a little bit using the same analogy. He's now going to bring into our, bring to our attention an emphasis on the position that it gives us and why this is important for our spiritual life. This is clear. Look down at verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. See, so use the analogy in the last chapter to show that that adoption means that at one point you're under a pedagogue and then you're not. Point, the Mosaic Law is no longer in effect. Now he's making a different point from the same analogy, and that is that you are an heir with God. You are an adult son. So you need to live like an adult son, and that means quit paying attention to the pedagogue. Now back to verse 1. Verse 1 and 2 sets up the illustration of adoption. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, that's using the word heir proleptically here, referring to his eventual position. He's not an heir yet. He's not designated an heir until the moment of adoption. But if everything goes well, that child will become the heir. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, here he uses the word for child. He uses this word, napios. Napios is a word that means, and its root meaning is a person who is without understanding. A person who is without understanding. Often it has the meaning of child with the implication of immaturity, whether it is intellectual immaturity, spiritual immaturity, or emotional immaturity. So here it is used 
technically to refer to the one, the child who has not reached his majority yet. He is not adopted yet. He is immature and he is without understanding. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from the slave. He's treated like a slave. The only difference is one day he's going to be over the slaves. But for those first 14 years, he is treated no different from a slave. And in a Roman society, that could be quite abusive. And most of the fathers, under the law of the power of the father, the uh, Patria Potestis, treated their children in just abominable, abominable ways. Even though he is, as long as he's the heir, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, here are two very interesting words that are used here in verse 2. First of all is the oikonomos. which is usually translated steward, the oikonomos, and the epitropos. A guardian. So we've been introduced to three different words now. We have the oikonomos, O-I-K-O, that's the word for house. Namas, N-O-M-O-S, is the word for law, house law. This is also a word for, for we get our word economy from this word. And stewardship, economy, it's also the word group from which we get the term dispensation. So it has to do with, some, with a slave who had the responsibility of oversight, uh, sometimes in relationship to money, to make sure that the will of the father was carried out. Uh, he's also called a guardian. This is E-P-I-T-R-O-P-O-S and a pedagogue. Each of these terms are referring to the same individual, just trying to emphasize different aspects of his responsibility. We'll just translate it tutor for sake of brevity. So these emphasize his aspect. One emphasizes his control or authority. One emphasizes his, the role of protector. And one emphasizes the role of teaching responsibility and carrying out the laws and, and mandates and policies of the father. So the child is treated like a slave until the date set by the father, which is when he is approximately 14 years of age, and you have the ceremony of adoption. Now then, beginning in verse 3, Paul is going to unpack this analogy for us. Verse 3, so also we, we now, who does the we refer to? This is so important in doing the work of interpretation. We have to go back to verse 20. But before the faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. The law was our tutor in verse 24. Now, that's referring to Jews. All through this context, we refers to Jews, and you refers to the Galatian Gentile believers. We is not, when he uses we, he's not talking about you and me, fellow believers in the church age. He's talking about Israel under the law, and he's using this historical time timeline referring to the history of salvation. He says, so also while we were children, that is viewing the Jews as being immature in terms of understanding of doctrine, uh, the fulfillment 
of salvation doctrine, full revelation of salvation doctrine, so also we Jews, while we were children, Napios, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That is relating the Mosaic law as religion. We were held in bondage. So the law is bondage, it's not freedom. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the law because why? The law was designed to teach them control over sin until the Messiah came. And that's verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is a very important phrase because it teaches us the principle that Jesus Christ controls history. So often today when people look around at what's going on either in our country or around the world, they have a tendency to panic, to start worrying, to get anxious about everything that's happening. But remember, Jesus Christ controls history. This does not mean that Jesus Christ violates individual volition, but Jesus Christ is in control and nothing can ever happen to destroy humanity, destroy the human race. The environment is not going to go crazy. We're not going to have to worry about global warming to the effect that uh, it's going to burn up the atmosphere and the ozone layer is going to go away and all these other things. The human race is not going to self-destruct because Jesus Christ controls history. So we don't have to get caught up in all the emotional panic that is so prominent today, trying to control the environment, trying to control history, trying to control everything to make sure the human race survives. The human race will survive. Jesus Christ controls history. And Jesus Christ is in such control that when the fullness of time came, this refers to the historical situation at the time of the first advent, the incarnation. What was going on then was that there were the dynamics of political, intellectual, and religious influences. In politics, you had the rise of the Roman Empire and all that that meant intellectually, it's preceded by Greek philosophic thought. Religious, you've got the development of Judaism, and you have the development of world religions. Now, why, why is this important? Because, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. That means that no matter what happens after the incarnation, God let the human race, gave them the freedom to develop all kinds of world religions, between the time of Adam and the time of the cross. All the world religions that have developed since then are just repetitions of what took place before that. Man tried all of his ways that he thought could get to God, and God is going to show how invalid they are with the incarnation of Christ. So God has given the human race all of this leeway, and now he's going to give them the truth. In terms of Roman background, the Romans had developed a system of roads which made communication easier and quicker. You could get all over the Mediterranean in ways that you could never have at any other time earlier in human history. Secondly, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, encouraged the free exchange of goods and ideas throughout the Roman Empire. It made sure that there was a time of peace. Here's the Med. And here, going up into northern Europe and around through Turkey, through uh, to the border between uh, Syria on the one hand, and uh, uh, the uh, Parthian Empire to the east, which was now for the first time in many years, there was a, uh, a peace between Rome and Parthia, and down through northern Egypt, 
uh, northern Africa, northern Egypt, all of this was under the control of Rome so that there was a tremendous uh, opportunity to exchange goods and ideas throughout most of the, the known world at that time. The pirates on the Mediterranean were mostly out of business by this time. Tra- travelers could uh, go throughout the empire without worrying about being hijacked and on the roads and, and having everything stolen from them. Linguistically, you had Latin that controlled the western part of the empire. Most of the people spoke Greek in the eastern part of the empire. In fact, most people were bilingual. They spoke both Latin and Greek. So through these languages, you could communicate anything throughout a vast majority of the human race at that time. So the Greek language was common to all. Uh, There was a relative indifference in the empire to new religions and philosophies. Uh, Christianity, remember, was an illegal institution until 313 A.D. when uh, Constantine made it legal. The first empire-wide persecution was in 250, and the last one was in 300. So in terms of worldwide persecutions, that only lasted for a period of about 50 years in the Roman Empire. There were a lot of sporadic uh, local persecutions, a number of them, but most of the ones that you see highlighted in in, uh, Hollywood movies and everything Uh, that's exaggerated as most things in Hollywood are. So there was a time of relative peace and prosperity throughout the Roman Empire, a time when uh, the government didn't pay a lot of attention to new new religions and new ideas, and so there was the opportunity for an expansion. Furthermore, there was an increasing cosmopolitan attitude among the people in the empire which favored the growth of Christianity. In terms of Greek philosophy, there was sort of a negative influence There was a speculative philosophy which had been hostile to Christianity, but it did put an emphasis that there was an ultimate reality beyond idolatry. An ultimate reality beyond idolatry. This prepared the ground for Christianity. Uh, Also, the Olympic religions, the gods of Olympus, were losing their popularity. The skepticism of the previous uh, century was producing a desire for hope among people. They felt like there was more meaning than just everyday life, and they were looking for that meaning. And because of the expansion of Greek culture, it gave the opportunity for Christianity to spread beyond the womb of Judaism. In Judaism, the Jews were spread throughout the the Roman Empire. Uh, Synagogues were built wherever ten or more Jews lived so that Paul had a place to go in every city, every culture where ten or more Jews were gathered. He could go to the synagogue and expound the Old Testament and show how those prophecies related to Jesus Christ. There was a messianic hope among the Jews at this time, a very, very fervent messianic hope. Furthermore, they had the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek in the Septuagint. Uh, The various different sects among the Jews created a lot of discussion related to the Messiah, and what it would be like when he came. So all of these factors came together and are included in what the Bible calls the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and born under the law. Well, we're about out of time this morning, so we'll stop there and we'll come back and finish this this passage on adoption and and its relationship to redemption beginning in verse 5 next Sunday morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at these dynamic truths in your scripture related to our so great salvation. How complex is our salvation? It is not something that just is as simple as being saved, now we're going to go to heaven, but it involves tremendous transformations.
tremendous planning on your part to overcome all of the complexities of sin. And Father, help us to understand these things, to be confident in all that you have done for us, not to become anxious about our salvation, but to uh, rest in your complete provision that we may go forward living this unique spiritual life that you have provided for us on the basis of all of the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, including his baptism work, indwelling, and the filling. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.